Hi, I'm Tony Babinski, and you're listening to The Grilled Podcast. My guest today is David Barry. David is the president of Pursuit, a travel and hospitality company with hotels and attractions across North America and in Iceland. Like others in the travel and hospitality industry, Pursuit has been hit hard by the COVID-19 crisis, and yet the company, under Dave's leadership, has shown tremendous resiliency, positivity, and generosity. After we completed our interview, protests against police brutality and racism erupted in cities across North America. David was among many corporate leaders who took an immediate stance with the protesters and against racism. He wrote a statement on Pursuit's behalf that I've been sharing with colleagues and friends. It's a great example of a company not just taking a stance against racism, but taking active steps to redress racial inequality now and in the future. It's filled with resources to help us get a better grip on the problem and work together to eradicate it. I'll share it with you on the Grilled website at www.thegrilledproject.com and on our social media. And now, on with the interview. All right, so I'm here with uh, David Barry, who's uh, president of uh, Pursuit, the travel company with um, with attractions and hotels in Montana, Alaska, uh, Iceland, Alberta, uh, Vancouver. Am I missing anything? Working on one in Las Vegas, working on one in Toronto. Right. So, Dave, you've uh, you started uh, your role in this company um, a few years ago. Uh, and you've watched uh, the, the company grow, and then all of a sudden, uh, you're hit by the uh, COVID-19 crisis uh, in March of this year, That um, uh, during which uh, your industry is one of the hardest hit, uh, the tourism industry. Um, I and uh, my listeners are very curious to know uh, how you're responding to this. Well, I think the first thing, so first of all, thank you, good morning. It's uh, early morning in Colorado, a little bit later in the morning in Montreal, and uh, it's a beautiful sunny day. Good to be here with you. So you go back in history and you go back 127 years to the foundation of our company, which starts with two adventurers called the Brewster Brothers, who, you know, were in a community in the Rockies and uh, had a random request from an individual to take them guiding. And uh, the first trip was a fishing trip and and off they went. And that was the birth of the company. And that's almost 130 years ago. So in 132 years, 130 years, there's been 22 economic cycles, 22 recessions. If you look back through history, there's been two world wars. There's been umpteen other things that affect. So oil and energy busts and booms um, together with an epidemic in 1918, you know, obviously the Spanish flu, millions of people died. So over time and over history, I think there's a few things to think about. So fundamentally, we believe the power of iconic locations will not be dimmed. And for those of us that have been working from home, this is day 67. (laughs) It's only not that I'm counting. And it's the longest time I've been in one place, I think since 2002. And uh, so what's interesting is, is you look at that and say, all right, so how are we feeling after day 66? I think we're all feeling tentative. We're still concerned that there are people who don't take this seriously. And in North America, you know, it's over 90,000 people have died. And, you know, it's a, it's a very serious thing. So from a business perspective, you have to think about the context of these events 
and then how you manage through it. So let me take you a little bit shorter time travel back to March the 12th. On March the 12th of this year, you could see the world starting to change dramatically. Some markets, Italy, Spain, others, were further ahead in terms of their impact. But certainly for North America, I would say it was that week ending Friday the 13th of all things that, that really set the tone. And I remember what I was doing on Friday the 13th. I was flying from Vancouver back to Denver in an empty plane. And it was like me, seven other people in a full, in the full size plane yeah. with the crew flying back to Denver. So you could see then that the world was starting to change. So a couple of things we prepare for. First, we split into two streams. One is the shutdown stream. So obviously we knew at that point, pursuits businesses to support regional health authorities and to support you know, government measures in each of our communities, we needed to shut all of our attractions. And that's both for compliance, but it's also common sense in supporting our teams. Because the last thing anyone wants is for you know, a team member to get sick. So one part of our leadership team is shutting things down. And we're used to planning for fires and, and earthquakes and floods and other things. So the textbook's ready, right? You snip the ribbon, you open up the book, and away you go. You've got a plan. Mm. The other half of the senior leadership team, as the group split, um, starts working on the return from hibernation. So it's a really interesting exercise as, as, you, as you plan. Yeah. So the first in command in a geography, you know, say the, the leader of that geography is focused on the shutdown. The second in command separates physically, goes to a different location, separates a team, pulls people out of their regular job, and they start working on what are the next steps. Mm -hmm. So for other hospitality companies, maybe they, they began their cleaning protocol revision in the third week of April. We began on the 16th of March, you know, very clearly starting to figure out what would industry leaders do and where could we look for inspiration, advice, and best practices. So we looked to Asia and then we began to you know, understand what could we do to, to, to perfect the return? Because the return is inevitable, right? We, we, were never, we were never unsure if we would return. The question was more how would we return? So tell me about that a little bit more. Because if, you, you know, if you're just reading the newspapers or, or uh, newspapers, excuse me, if you're just reading the news online and elsewhere, uh, you know, it's pretty doom and gloom, right? Your, yours is one of the hardest hit industries and we're, uh, and, you know, the predictions are people are not going to travel anymore, don't want to travel anymore, are going to be too scared to travel. Uh, why you, part of your answer is that you've already looked to geographies like Asia where it seems to have started again. But what's guiding your, your you know, your, your predictive uh, um, uh, initiatives at this time? So the fun thing with us is we like measuring things and we track everything. So if you look at website visitation, right, just pick a random geography, pick Alaska website visitation on the 13th of March, 14th, 15th, 16th of March, visitation on the website drops to almost zero. Yeah. So you don't have to be, you know, have to go to Wharton to figure out, huh, <laughs> you know, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. There's a challenge here with how we're going to manage it. But then over time, you start to see website visitation begins to creep back up. And so one of the things I talked about on our earnings call, so we're a division of a public company, and obviously we report our earnings and, <clears throat> excuse me, markets. We're always curious about what we see going forward. When I talk about green shoots, 
in the economy and, and what I see in our business is that slowly over this 66, 67 day period, behaviors start to change. So remember that most media reports are a snapshot in time. They're a reflection of what happened on that particular day and reflect sentiment that, that guests may have on that particular day. But I don't spend a lot of time putting a lot of credence to what the media reports on sentiment or particular things. I tend to go look at the data, which I think is more indicative of how things will return. So behavior is interesting. People, after a period of time, start to tiptoe out into the world to see what might be available. So maybe you were planning to take your family to the Adriatic Sea this summer and you were going to go to Europe and see, you know, visit Rome and do this and that. You might not be doing that for Montreal, right? Right. So a visit to the Canadian Rock thing that it's probably better than staying home or going to the cottage. And uh, your focus is, well, what can I do within Canada that's interesting? So in this first year, what I think will happen will be safe destinations will be popular and the visitation levels won't be like 2019. They'll probably be half of that, but people will venture out to have iconic, unforgettable, inspiring experiences mm. and we'll do so in a way that's safe. So through distancing, through cleaning protocols, through their own behavior, and we'll focus their time and support to companies who are organized to receive them in a way that's safe as well. So Mike, so like, how do you make your industry safe um, in an era when we have to respect social distancing and, uh, and a high degree of hygiene? How does that happen? Well, I think, so we launched something called, <clears throat> excuse me, Pursuit Safety Promise. And the safety promise basically has four pillars. It's safe, which is everything about distancing, masks, et cetera, et cetera, that help people. Uh, not only have a feeling of safety, but that you're actually using distance as one of your best uh, weapons against the spread of disease. So I saw a statistic, we'd have to verify it, but I, said, I can't remember what newspaper it was, I think it was the New York Times, where they did a, a little chart on the transmission between people. That if someone is infected, talking to someone who's not wearing a mask, and neither of them are wearing a mask, the transmission rate is quite high. It's north of 60%. If one person has a mask, say the infected person and the other one doesn't, the transmission rate is much lower. The lowest transmission rate, though, is when two people are wearing a mask and it's 5%. So you think, where did N95 come from? Well, it's 95% of whatever's nasty. Yeah. <laughs> That's how they named the mask. So it's, like, it's not like the name came out of nowhere. You know, it's, it came out of the... the research and work of how do we prevent the transmission. So one of the safest things you can do is maintain social distance, wash your hands like a crazy person, and wear a mask. And if you do those things, that really helps. So that's the first part of our safety promise. The second is clean. So you adapt your cleaning protocols in very different ways. So think of us in the sense that I came from, you know, the hospitality world, 40 years of skiing and I was involved for a decade with CMH, the heli-ski company. And one of the things that you work on in that environment, because <clears throat> you have remote mountain lodges, is how do you deal with norovirus? Norovirus is something that, you know, rarely, occasionally affects uh, remote hospitality operations because someone generally goes to the bathroom and doesn't wash their hands and then touches some things and other guests touch it. And then, you know, 
a normal virus spreads. Mm. The cleaning protocols, though, are very similar. And so one is you've already got a set of cleaning protocols and you, and you just basically implement those everywhere. So it's more thorough, more rigorous, and you work hard to eliminate touch points. Any, any time that you have to touch something, is there a way to do it differently? And we've looked at things like the design of a door handle, <laughs> you know, that you yeah. can use your elbow to turn the door handle rather than your hand. But the best thing I think as human beings we can do is you just continue to wash your hands. So Don't touch your face, wash your hands. So that's at the staff level. What about guests in a hotel like, uh, let's say, the Prince of Wales in Waterton where yeah. my wife, which you now own? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so the Prince is a good example of, again, the cleaning protocols apply. And then the best thing you can do is also educate guests. So simple things like, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been out in any retail environments, the thoughtful ones have marked spots on the floor yeah, and where you stand and where you don't. So in terms of when you check people in, but again, from our standpoint, if you can get ready and check people in ahead of time, and all you have to say from six feet away is, you know, Babinski, and I can hand you safely without getting close to you, a room key, and you can go let yourself in. Um, I'm, we're working to eliminate those awkward, unnecessary physical touch points that people don't want. The third part of the safety promise is inform. So you talk to everybody about what you're doing and you be completely transparent. And so again, if, if the Babinski family shows up at the Banff Gondola and you all been together for the last 66 days, 67 days, we don't need to separate you in different gondola cars. We can put you in together because you've been in the same car. You drove up in the same car. Right. So one of the things we do is through our parking attendants to our guest service attendants, you watch who arrived together. And then you're communicating that to the ticketing queue to let people know, you know, family, red and blue, travel together, same car. You know, so when you walk into the lobby, someone actually knows what's going on. Oh, right? wow. Okay. So it'll be yeah, that. So it's, it's, it's no different than when you, you're, you know, you're checking into a hotel and, and the doorman, while you're paying the taxi driver, unloads your luggage from the trunk and checks out your name on your luggage tag and radios the front desk that you're coming. Okay. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? It's, and we have a view, Tony, that, uh, you know, service, it's something that you provide to someone, right? You get your car clean, that's a service. But hospitality, hospitality is how you make people feel. And that's just a completely different mindset. So if I'm wearing a mask and you're arriving in a hotel, can you see my smile? You probably can't. So what do I do? Do I wave? Do I say, welcome, so nice to have you here over my mask in a muffled tone? Or how do I convey that message? So that's the fourth pillar of our safety promise, which is peace of mind. How do I create peace of mind with you that you understand we're doing everything we can um, to deliver great experiences? And there's good examples of that, right? There's a great, great, great global hotel company called Langham Hotels run by Stefan Laser. And uh, Stefan is based in Hong Kong, but he's Swiss. And um, they are a phenomenal company and they do uh, an amazing job at the high end of hotel experiences. And, you know, in conversations back and forth and learning from them, it's how did they ease back into some of these things and, and prepare. And so the great benefit is you can always learn by studying smart people. So your um, the, the next question, I guess this is begs another question, which is uh, the, the the success. Well, first of all, you're are you learning to live with COVID, which is interesting, uh, rather than waiting for it to go away. So you're you're adapting to it in a very proactive way. Um, 
how do you gauge uh, public desire to go out and do something like stay in a hotel? Like, I know that your flyover Iceland operation has been open for like three weeks almost now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think closer to two weeks. Yeah. So interesting example, right? So flyover Iceland open and, you know, Iceland is a country that's done a very proactive job on a whole wide range of things. So one, a huge amount of testing. Um, there's an article, I think, from the Wall Street Journal where it talks about Iceland's organized crime unit switched from, you know, dealing with organized crime in Iceland to actually tracking people that, you know, returned from abroad and may or may not have been quarantining, you know, so the, the Icelandic policeman shows up at your door, ah, Mr. Babinski, yeah. you know, please stay inside, sir. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's the ship organized as a country. So a couple of things. One, their rates of infection flattening and very effective at flattening the curve, a significant amount of testing, and then safely creating protocols that businesses could reopen. So on Saturday, um, over the day on Saturday, we had 455 visitors at Flyover Iceland, um, which is not, you know, 1,200 or 1,500 that we would have on a normal Saturday. It's about half. And, but it's an indication of, you know, how people are, venturing out in a way that's safe. And so you have social distancing. The ride equipment is cleaned after every single guest ride. You have um, touchless transactions that don't require guests to pull stuff out of their wallet or do other things that you can do it, you know, through technology. And, um, you know, there's lots of virtual hugs rather than physical hugs, but it, it connects all together. So back to your question, how do you know that people are interested? Well, back to what we track. So we track website visitation, we track booking inquiries, we, we do daily what's called the disposition report. And what the disposition report tells us is who contacted us for what purpose. So if you watched it on a curve, you'd see, okay, huge amount of cancellations through March, cancellations flattened out, and then inquiries started to climb again. So you know that behavior is indicative in terms of people don't just wake up in the morning and decide, okay, today after day 78, I'm going to leave the house and go back to normal. They're going to ease out slowly um, in things that they're comfortable with. And as national parks reopen, as visitation is encouraged, um, all of these things go together to, you know, help communicate to the world that there are ways to do this safely and, and following those protocols, great cleaning, distancing, that element of safety, informing guests to the extent you can and creating peace of mind. So I want to ask you about two things. Uh, one is that, you know, I've been so impressed with uh, restaurant operators here and elsewhere who, even though they've been extremely hard hit by this uh, crisis, have been tremendously generous in the response, um, feeding the hungry and feeding the needy. And I know that you've got a program uh, like that going in Banff, which is providing food at cost. Do you want to tell me about that? Sure. So it's actually Banff and Jasper. So think of these two communities where the unemployment rate in these communities right now is probably 96, 97%. So if you don't work for the town of Banff or Parks Canada, you're probably not working, right? Because restaurants are still shut, retail shut, um, hotels are shut. They're slowly starting to reopen. But through the peak of this crisis, I mean, 96, 97% unemployment. So two individuals on our team, and they get the credit, uh, Scott Hergott, who's the executive chef at Sky Bistro, and Richard Cooper and Jasper, who leads uh, food and beverage businesses in Jasper for us, um, jointly had an idea of what could we do um, to serve our communities and to help people. 
So the other thing to remember is that we think of Banff as only a tourist destination or Jasper, but they're really real communities. I mean, they're not just tourist destinations. They are real communities and any real community has a wide range of citizens. Look at, you know, if you're in, you know, Little Burgundy in Montreal or you're in NDG, I mean, you've got people of all ages, right? You've got young families, you've got seniors, you've got this wide range of things. And it's very much the same in Banff and Jasper. So together, those two individuals uh, worked on a program that could we provide meals in a safe way? Firstly, could we produce them in kitchens in a safe way? Could we then create them in a food safe environment that could be delivered or picked up, you know, as a takeout service? And they began to work on the program. At the same time, we were laying off significant numbers of team members because obviously our businesses were closed. So probably the most heartfelt thing was, you know, a sous chef getting laid off at 10 o'clock and at 10.05 says, great, okay, I knew that was coming. I'm okay with it. Can I volunteer for Easy Eats, which is the name of the program? And so we had this tremendous influx of team members volunteering their time. We provided food as well as our suppliers supported us um, to provide food. We had basically two days a week, you know, where you could pre-order and then pick up. And then volunteers in the community helping deliver and other things to, to people who were shut in and, you know, couldn't necessarily go and pick something up and provide food. So we've served almost 14,000 meals um, in two communities. And it's sort of a pay what you can afford to pay program in the sense that if you're <clears throat> doing fine and, and you're picking up dinner for your family, it's a reasonable price and, and really high quality. And if you can't and you're just hungry and you don't have any money, um, we've been feeding a bunch of people. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you think of, we have four core values, you know, and one of them is bring your best. And we just felt it was the right thing to do for the community to bring our best and to feed people and uh, to support them through this. Now, you were called out. Uh, by uh, not called up, but you were mentioned by uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a recent uh, speech uh, or pre press conference um, for taking part in the emergency benefit program. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I mean, it's nice to get recognized. I don't think we did anything any any more special or different than any other company in the sense that we. Uh, so let me back up. The government of Iceland and the government of Canada have both been incredibly proactive in terms of their support of all industries and people. And the reason I say that is obviously, uh, you know, I'm a Canadian who lives in the U.S., but I can, I can tell you in the U.S., you know, certainly very challenging in terms of the response. Um, and there's been some things in the U.S. that have worked well, but, but not to the same level and simplicity of the programs in Canada. So if you run a business you're pretty tuned into payroll and when the payroll dates are like when your payroll processes and when it runs. So the Q's program was matched up to those payroll dates, which I thought was really ingenious. Secondly, it was a very fast mechanism to get support directly into the hands <coughs> of Canadians um, and getting them back to work. So the way the program works in it, I'll simplify it, but if we can bring people back to work up to 75% of their wages covered, and it funnels directly through us. So it's through a payroll system, you know, not a bunch of paperwork, not those silly, you know, UI cards you gotta fill in. It's, it's very clearly, you know, directly to people. Our ability to bring people back, which we brought 337 staff members back sooner than we would have without this program. 
So I think that's what the prime minister was referring to, you know, when he, when he mentioned us and, and, uh, you know, we, you, you appreciate any good, say, say, parlez-en bien, parlez-en bien, like it's, it's talk about us, it's wonderful, thank you, we appreciate it. But at the same time, you know, we're in, we're in uh, fine company with many other great Canadian and global companies that are facing these same challenges who've handled it the same way. So, uh, I've noticed you've been, ha- you've been hiring steadily throughout this process as well for your properties. Well, how, what kind of response well, have you got? It's seasonal. So remember that, that, you know, normally at this time we're ramping up into full operation. And so think of pursuit where, think of an accordion, right? Where our busiest season is basically May through October. Mm -hmm. So we go from a core group of 650, 700 team members to almost 3000. So we bring on seasonal team members from all over the world who come and work for us, you know, and join the team in, in all of our different geographies. Obviously that's, you know, slowed to a, a much smaller number. And um, so we are, we are still hiring for the season and trying to manage that as appropriately as we can, given business volumes and demand. It's a little tough because you don't know um, just how busy we're going to be. Right. And also, I mean, I don't know uh, how far geographically your hiring pool uh, extends, but it's not easy to get to your properties from some places in Canada now because there's no flights. And I mean, how, how, just the uh, the transportation uh, profile of Canada right now is very different than it would be in a normal summer. So, you know, are you, are you predicting that there will be uh, more flights, more tourist flights? Uh, how, how are you getting in? You know, even then, how are you getting people around from one destination to another? Travels. Are, are the benefit of of geographies is that within the geographies, it's relatively easy to move within the geographies because. You can do that by, you know, private vehicle or, you know, our own transportation teams can move people around. So getting people to a destination, I mean, travel is still open for work. I mean, if, if you are coming, I mean, you, you can still travel for business if you need to. Um, and obviously the airlines, I think, are doing a really good job of how do they manage the protocol um, together. And flights are diminished, but they're still flying. It's not like there's no flights. So if people need to move, they can move. Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of folks that are out of work in, in each geography that, uh, you know, would love a second job or, or looking to, you know, join a company through this period and look into the future. So it sounds crazy for me to relay it that it does, it's not a problem, but it's kind of what we do. Hmm. You know, if you think of rock and roll, right, they show up with all their equipment, they set the thing up, they play, and then they disappear. And it's like, wow, it's like magic. Well, for us, it's like we're used to completely bringing on a team, training them quickly, orienting them to our culture and our values and our hospitality, and then running a season and then closing. So, you know, it's it's kind of what we do. The show, the show is going on. No, no matter the show what. goes on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I always ask, um, your, your summer will be what it will be. Um, I'm curious in a, uh, at a more general level to know what you think uh, the impact of this crisis will have on your industry and the world more generally and if you have any kind of sort of vision of, of, of a future after this well I think the world evolves and changes right so um, you know if you think of these devices he says holding up a phone you're, you're holding up yeah, an iPhone I'm, yeah. I'm holding up a phone I forgot right, that's yeah. right yeah. so I'm holding up a phone and uh Think of what we do on our phone today that's different than what 
you know, the first mobile phone that came out, I remember I had a, I had a Kentel big gray one with a long antenna that you couldn't fit in a pocket that the charge lasted like seven minutes. And uh, that was revolutionary, but you know, compared to what a phone can do now. So humans are really good at adapting to different circumstances. So from our perspective, we think the world's going to change touchless and I mean really touchless technologies will help people not have to interact in a physical way. Does anyone want to touch the credit card machine when it comes back with the server after you've had a great meal and, you know, and, and they hand you the thing? Hmm. So I predict that probably they're going to have some kind of wipe on their, on their apron that they pull that out, pull out a sterile wipe, clean that thing, and hand it to you to use. Or better yet, you don't. Do you really want to touch a menu or can menus be managed in a different way? So there's a whole development of technology, the way rooms are clean, the cleaning technologies. I saw something, uh, many of us are using masks. And so an interesting thing is obviously for team members, we, we're trying to figure out how do you um, sterilize masks on, a, on an efficient way with scale. So taking a container, like a large seven gallon Tupperware container, putting masks in with an ozone generator and letting that run for 30 minutes sterilizes the masks. So you, you wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Not really. I, I would, don't think I would have done a lot of research on ozone generators and how they sterilize masks prior to this. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you've got a clear view of how to do things. So we think that evolves. But when I say the power of iconic places won't be dimmed, I, I mean that people are not going to stay home forever. They didn't in 1918, and they're not going to now. They're going to they're begin the return. And I think that creating memories for your family and your friends, your loved ones, is more important than buying things. Hmm. So I think people are going to buy less junk, and they're going to do more stuff. And that fits our mission really perfectly in the sense of, you know, what we, what we focus on, which is creating, uh, connecting guests and staff with iconic places through these unforgettable, inspiring experiences that people are going to love a view, right? You know, people from all over the world go to the top of Mount Royal in Montreal and look at the view. Yeah. People from all over the world come to the top of the Banff Gondola and look at the view because it's beautiful. And it's so different than what they may have at home. Mm. So those things are... They are attractions for a reason because they're beautiful and inspiring and peaceful and, and motivating. And, and that's, I think people will continue to do that. They're still going to want access. I had one question I just, I just wanted to ask you. What is, uh, what do you think that the, the, or describe to me the, the dance now between private enterprise and government and the public moving forward? Because now, you're, you're experiencing it. You're working in many territories with many levels of government. You're, you know, uh, you're expected to innovate as a, as a private company. Um, what's your experience of it, you know, on the ground? Well, so I'll say something maybe a little provocative. I think there's two types of politicians or two types of people who enter public service. Those that do it for themselves. And the vast majority that do it to serve the public good. And I've been nothing but impressed by the vast majority of civic leaders through this crisis and extremely thoughtful, very cooperative, working with the private sector, wanting opinions and different points of view 
uh, galvanized to move quickly and, and to protect all citizens. And you're going to see people that behave in partisan political ways. But, you know, I think in the end, uh, my hope is that it catches up to them because others are just super proactive in their view. I think Bill Morneau, if you look in Canada as the Minister of Finance, has done some phenomenal things. Uh, the Prime Minister of Iceland, look at Martin in, in New Zealand in terms of the focus and energy. Uh, Governor of Montana, Steve Bullock's done a phenomenal job. Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, has done an absolutely phenomenal job in terms of uh, both supporting citizens, supporting the economy. So vast majority, I think, really want to do good work, and they're curious, and they're innovating as are we. So all politics are local, and you know it's easy to be a movie critic and sit on the sidelines and criticize politicians. It's a lot harder to roll up your sleeves and say, I'm going to go be a movie maker with them. So that's what we try to do, is we try to um, get in the tent and work on the problem set with them in ways that is that are collaborative. And, um, you know, we have opinions about what we think could work, and we express those. But it's also one where you don't just show up when times are bad to get angry at people and insist they be doing things. It's a relationship like any other. And so you want to maintain those dialogues. And I would just urge people as citizens, get involved in this process. That's why it's a democracy, right? Not a dictatorship. You know, it's a democracy. So go, go get your voice be heard. Get off your ass and get out and deal with, you know, your local representatives. Communicate with them. Talk to them. Talk to them about your neighborhood. And that's where it starts. All politics are local. Then it builds from there. Dave, inspiring as usual. <laughs> thanks <laughs> thanks very much for your time that's great you're so welcome and uh you know we listen and and uh excited to see you back doing this and so lots of exciting things so let's stay in touch over the summer and we can give you updates as things progress that'd be great thanks very much okay cheers okay my guest today was david barry the president of pursuit once again, I invite you to read Pursuit's statement on racism and police brutality at www.thegrillproject.com and on our social media. Thanks for listening.